Now, if you don't have your Bible with you, and uh, you can use the scriptures that are printed in your uh, bulletin. They're actually, we print them every week in your bulletin for your convenience. And so, now hear this scripture. Uh, as we go through Advent these four weeks, we're going to be reading very familiar scriptures. And uh, it's almost impossible for us to just read them like for the first time. But I'm going to ask you to just read it uh, like it's new. And then I'll help, uh, help you as we explore what the meanings are in this passage. Starting with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. There's a distinct danger in reading scriptures like this that we hear almost every year and sometimes uh, they become so familiar that we just can't really get to what they're telling us. And uh, in this passage, it's not uh, hard to go in that direction where it just becomes sentimentality. We think of the Virgin Mary and we just get all warm and fuzzy and Joseph and the manger and, and all of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful story. But there was a meaning behind it. There was a reason that Matthew needed to write this, not just to give us an historical account of what happened. That's easy enough. But to tell us what the meaning behind uh, this birth and why it had to happen this way and what was going on. And right away, uh, one thing you should notice is that Matthew associates Joseph of the book of Genesis with Joseph, the father, stepfather of Jesus. Now this may get past us because we don't think about it, but he's actually doing something by using Joseph's name and saying Joseph had a dream, which he did, all his facts. But imagine you're an Old Testament person. You're, this is going to ring in your ears a certain way. You're going to think, oh, Joseph, I've heard that story all my life. I know what that story's about. He had a, a technicolor uh, dream coat. He had all this beautiful uh, uh, little Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, didn't get that? We really need to pray for you folks. And then, yeah, but 
He had this many-colored coat. His father preferred him. He was the child of his father's old age and born to uh, his father's favorite wife. And so he had this place. He was, a, he was a young son. The older men were already grown. And he started having these dreams that led him uh, to make his family intensely uh, resentful of him, his brothers and even his parents. And his brothers betrayed him and sent him into Egypt as a slave. Now that whole story would have jumped up in the mind of any uh, Old Testament person or any even an early New Testament person who knew the history of the Bible. They would have associated Joseph of the Old Testament with this Joseph and the fact that they are having dreams superintended by God. And what is that dream pointing to? What is the dream about? The dream is about an event in history that became the paradigm, if you will, the pattern for every redemptive event in the whole Old Testament. And that was the exodus from Egypt. The exodus became their paradigmatic event, the same way the cross is for us. Whenever they would refer to things in their history, whether it was return from exile or, or some form of captivity that they got themselves or some war or something, they always referenced the book of Exodus and their great deliverance from the land of Egypt, from bondage to slavery, to sin, or to the return to the land after the exile, after they had uh, 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 disobeyed God. And so the gospel, right away, we know the gospel is announcing something, an announcement of the coming of the great king, the long-awaited Messiah. And Matthew does this. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the king, Christos, Mashiach in Hebrew, the king, Jesus the king, took place in this way. So Matthew is telling us, we're about to enter a new exodus event. This is a new event for us. And all the associations would start to click. And it, it, sometimes we've got to be reminded of that because we can get down into uh, the, uh, the overwhelming uh, pressure of our traditional understanding of Christmas and, and lose the meaning behind this. And I think if you don't give up your traditional sentiment, that's all good. But for goodness sakes, add to it and maybe even make it preeminent what Matthew is telling the people. And we're going to look at this. He actually has four dreams. Some say three. I, I think there's four dreams. One is this dream that we're going to look at. Joseph, he calls him Joseph, son of David. And then he points to Emmanuel, God with us. Then the next dream we're going to look at next week is the flight from Egypt. Joseph went into Egypt ahead of his family. His family fled to Egypt, 70 souls, to be preserved there during a time of great famine and oppression. And the same thing is, is repeated here. And Matthew's he wants you to make these associations. He wants you to connect these things. And then the next dream he has is when uh, the angel tells him, come and, and leave Egypt, go back to the promised land, and he does. And, and then Matthew very intentionally says, this was to fulfill the prophecy, out of Egypt I've called my son. He's signaling everybody this is a new exodus, a new humanity, 
a new people that, is going to, that are going to grow out of this great king and this great prophet that's coming. And finally, this last one, he will be called a Nazarene. We'll look at that on the last Sunday of Advent. So very quickly, we're going to look at Joseph, the man. We're going to look at how does Joseph handle this news that his bride, his virgin bride, is with child. Now, in that culture, and all you have to do is turn on the news, you know that in many cultures in the world, that was a, a, a scandal to, to beat all scandals a young woman who's betrothed with child. Uh, So we're going to look at how Joseph, as a man, how he handled that. Then we're going to see what the angel addresses him in this very unique way. He says, Joseph, son of David. You know, that's what they said about Jesus. Jesus, son of David. So Matthew is alerting you to something, and he's telling Joseph something too in the dream. The angel is telling him, don't forget David. Joseph, Joseph, Exodus, David, the great king, whose covenant will be everlasting, who will sit on the throne forever. You see those connections he's starting to form. The angels forming them for Joseph, and Matthew's forming them for us, for the audience. And then finally, we'll look at the son of Joseph, Emmanuel, and what that means. So look very quickly at these first few verses. The birth of Jesus uh, was like this. Mary and Joseph are betrothed, and before they came together, or in other words, before they had sexual uh, intimacy, uh, if they ever did, and that depends on your tradition. You know, in the Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox tradition, virgin, uh, Mary was perpetually a virgin. In Protestantism, uh, we've kind of been all over the map on that. Some Protestants say no. Some Protestants say it doesn't matter. Some Protestants say yes, she was perpetually a virgin. So it just it kind of depends on where you fall. I don't think that part really matters. The fact is that she was a virgin and was with child, and it wasn't Joseph's. And that would have raised all kinds of problems for this couple. Huge problems. An unexpected pregnancy was deadly serious in that world. In fact, in the, in the law of Moses, it was a capital offense and the woman was to be stoned. So you lost your life over it. Now the rabbis and the Roman uh, laws had, had kind of overpowered that and said, no, you can't murder them, you can't kill them. There's no capital punishment now under Roman rule. Uh, but... In every way, there was still severe public scorn and shame and social stigma. Now, many of you are old enough, I know that I am, that when a girl, when I went to Coronado High School, right up the hill here, I know it's hard to believe, I was there when they first built it, and they're rebuilding it now. So guess how I feel? I feel old. Okay, so... When a girl, and we did have occasionally, someone would get pregnant in high school, and, and they disappeared. Now they, it's not that big a deal, but we can remember a time when it was a severe shame to get pregnant out of wedlock. A time, and in most of the world it still is, and in some places they still kill women for this problem in, in some other countries. It was deadly serious. And what 
Joseph does. This man Joseph, who we know very little about, some I, I read up on him uh, in in some books and references. Some uh, traditional history, church history, says he was very old. He was ninety years old when they got married, uh, and that he had been married before and had children. Uh, four boys and two girls who are mentioned in here. They would have been Jesus' half-brothers, if that's true. Uh, There are other scholars, more recent scholarship has said, no, he was a teenager just like her. She might have been 13, 14 years old, maybe 15, but uh, no older than that, and he probably would have been just a year or two older than her. So they they could have been young teenagers. Again, it doesn't matter. The church may, the, the idea that Joseph was old and had other children came later in church history when they were trying to protect the perpetual virginity uh, of, of uh, Mary for, for doctrinal reasons. Now, be that as it may, the fact of the matter is, and everyone, you can, you can feel, you can vibrate with this a little bit, that here's this man who... Uh, is marrying a, a young maiden and all of a sudden she's with child. What do you do? Well, under the law, he could divorce her and he would be entirely just in doing it. It was fine. He could divorce her uh, and, uh, and, and go on w- with his business. But it says that he began to think about it. He, he, he started to contemplate and then it says he resolved to put her away privately so as not to shame her, he was showing her both he was executing justice in her life and their life, but he was also showing her great mercy in that he did not want to shame her, so he was going to do it quietly. And it says, look at verse 19, Joseph was a just man, and the word he uses there is uh, a word that we call righteous or just It's a word that means that he was zealous to obey God's law, to follow the law. He was unwilling to shame her publicly, so he resolves or he contemplates this idea of divorcing her quietly. So Joseph was doing everything right and even above and beyond because he was going to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to bring any shame into her life, but... He had made up his mind, more or less, that he was not going to stay with her. And that's where the dream comes in. Joseph displays the highest quality of godly character. And you need to know this, that in the Bible, there's only a few times where any character is idealized. What I mean by that is that Abraham is not an idealized character. You see a lot of flaws in Abraham. Moses is not an idealized character. You see lots of flaws in Moses. Joshua, on the other hand, the one who followed Moses, was an idealized character. There's no flaws in him. Are you following, you tracking with me? And Joseph is one of those figures in the Bible. There's no flaws in him. He's portrayed as ideal, as a perfect father a just and zealous man for the law, a righteous man, a good man. We don't know his age. We don't know anything about him. He was a a laborer, a carpenter maybe. But here is a man who is thinking deeply through. He doesn't react. He's just thinking, what can I do? Well, I probably should divorce her, but I need to show her mercy. And he does it. He does it right. And that's where the dream comes in. 
Look down at uh, verse 20 there. As he considered, now the, the Greek shows that he uses a different word. In other words, this word means that he was still mulling it over. He had not come to a final conclusion. Somewhere in the back of his mind, it was still troubling him because he was a righteous man. And so perhaps he really loved her. We don't know. In that world, they set up marriage. Sometimes the day they meet their spouse was on their wedding day. Remember uh, Tevia and, and, and uh, Fiddler on the Roof? They met on their wedding day. And that's what happens in a lot of those cultures. We don't know. But something in the back of his mind was working. And it says that an angel appeared to him, verse 20, in a dream. Now that associates us immediately with Joseph because this dream is not just out of nowhere. It has portent. In Joseph's life, it's going to be the thing that convinces him to go this way instead of that way. The dream. For us, we're to see that God is intervening in a real human affair. Think of your weaknesses in your life and we think, oh, God doesn't understand. He understands. He understands them. He understands them better than us. And He doesn't hold His nose or look away from us. He moves in and helps us. He's helping Joseph and He's helping us to negotiate something that's very difficult for him. And then he says, Joseph, son of David. This acclamation of son of David would have done a lot of things. First of all, for Joseph, it would have jarred his mind and he would have said, wow, he's calling me son of David. He knows my lineage. He knows where I came from. And there were lots of people that were related to David and had this, this lineage of Davidic uh, ancestry. But that would have triggered something in his mind. He would have said, Joseph, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who David was and everything that was associated with the person of David. Being the ideal king, the, the, the king who stood out, the, the seventh son, the eighth son in Kings and in Chronicles, he's the seventh son. They, they portrayed him as being just right to be the king and to set everything in motion, but he was still a flawed man. But son of David was a high acclamation. This angel, an angel from heaven is paying a human being the highest degree of respect and honor that he could have possibly showed him. And this is what he says. And I'm going to read you a, a, a translation that uh, is probably a little bit better than the one that's in the ESV. God help us. Uh, he says, You should not fear or shrink back. You should not fear or shrink back to take her as your wife. You can, you may, but you should not. And the reason I'm saying that, the reason this is important is because in the English translation it says, do not fear to take her as your wife. It sounds like a command. It sounds like an imperative. But in Greek, it's a subjunctive. And I've got to tell you, I don't know that much about grammar, but I had to learn this much. And that is that the subjunctive mood always rever refers to a hypothetical. Something that could be. So he's not commanding Joseph. He's saying, 
you shouldn't be afraid. He's opening his presuppositions. Why would you be afraid to take this helpless woman and her child? Why would you be afraid to take him and her into your life? What is there? What idol is there that is holding you back? And we all know what it is. Shame and guilt and association with her and her unwed you know, condition and her child who's a father who knows. And on and on it goes. Think what this man was dealing with. Without speculating. I'm not speculating. He's just dealing with this. He's resolving. He's thinking about it. And the angel comes to him and doesn't command him but tells him, you should. You ought to go ahead and not shrink back. He's telling him, You can, but you shouldn't. He's not asking, think of this, this is what blows my mind. He is not asking Joseph to do what the law required, show justice and be merciful. He had already done that. He did that on his own. The man Joseph did that, showed justice and mercy to her. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And here comes this angel in a dream and tells him no. Why would you just do that? Why would you merely show justice and mercy? I want more. And folks, Christmas puts a burden on you and me because God is going to ask more from you than just to follow the law and just to be merciful. He's going to demand more from you and more from me. He demanded it from Joseph. He says, take her. And the word take can imply a public marriage. In other words, he was told or he was, he was questioned, why wouldn't you take her? Why wouldn't you publicly identify? Do you love her? Do you care about her? You want to show her mercy. Why not go more? Why not go more? Take her. Mary, public marriage, name her son. And we know for a fact that if the father named the child, the child was his child, either biologically or by adoption. And some of you folks have adopted. Some of you may have been adopted or you know somebody that's adopted. There's nothing greater and more glorious, no more of a privilege than to go and take somebody that's not yours and take them in and save them. See, salvation is not just saving you from your sins. That's part of it. But saving us from sin and the effects of sin and the fall and all of the garbage that goes on in the world around us, we have an opportunity to do more, to actually pluck the brand from the burning, to actually lift somebody out of their their shameful position, their guilty position, to bring them in and cover them with your righteousness, with your goodness, with your kindness. And he's telling Joseph, that's what I want from you. Will you do that? Will you go this far for Mary and for her child? In other words, he's saying, I don't want you just to be nice. I want you to boldly go in, publicly embrace her, take her shame, her guilt, Whatever shame goes on the baby for not knowing who his father is, all of that, no secrets, no nothing. Take them in and cover them. Save them. 
from the disgrace, from the shame, from the, all of the social stigma was not going to be taken away by Joseph marrying Mary. You, you understand what I'm saying? None of that was going to go away. It was all going to stay there. But now, instead of it just being on this poor teenage girl and her, her child, who's going to bear the burden of the shame and the guilt and the scorn and the cultural junk that goes along with it? Who's going to carry that load? Joseph is going to carry the load. He's going to go step right into that mess and take it on himself. Because the angel says in verse 21, she'll bear a son. He's from the Holy Spirit. You're going to call his name Jesus, which means salvation. For he, and again in the Greek it says he himself, he and no other. He himself, he and no other will save his people from their sins. In other words, he is going to do for you, Joseph, what you're going to do for him and his mother. On one level, Joseph is being asked to step in and bear the shame and the guilt of Mary and Jesus. And the promise from the angel is he he himself, he and no other is going to come back and bear the burden for you. And somehow, I don't know, Joseph really didn't understand it all. We can probably be pretty sure he didn't really get it all. I mean, what's a virgin birth? I don't know. But, and what's remarkable is that the text does not tell us. I hate listening to sermons where preachers, oh, he must have been heartbroken. Oh, he must have been this and then they throw in all this stuff. I don't know what was going on in Joseph's mind. I know he was thinking about it and I know that he obeyed without question. I know that every step of this man's way, every step was just and righteous. Even when he was acting out of his own uh, thoughts and cogitations of his mind, he still wanted to do what was right in God's sight, what was righteous. But then the angel comes and asks more of him. And there's no hesitation, there's no equivocation, there's no argument. This man just steps up and does it and there's no other uh, commentary by Matthew of anything else, just he went and obeyed. Just like Abraham went up the mountain. I've heard sermons out galore of people who do this whole psychological profile of Abraham, what he must have been thinking and feeling. and nah, nah, nah. That's called eisegesis. That's the worst thing you can do is tell the Bible what it's saying instead of the Bible telling you what it's saying is you come along and tell it what it's saying. I don't know how Abraham felt. I don't know anything about it. In fact, it's bare naked what Abraham felt. One thing we know for sure he got up early the next morning and went. And never a word out of his mouth other than obedience at my expense. Abraham was going to pay a price. At Joseph's expense, this was all going to... It was going to cost him. Abraham didn't know how that debt was going to be paid. Joseph didn't know. They had an inkling, they had an idea about it, but they didn't know like we know. We can read it, we know what's going on. We should be jumping up and down in our chairs right now with so much excitement. Don't do it because 
this is a Presbyterian church. and so Some of us will have a heart attack if you move too much. Who told me that funny joke? Did you tell me the funny joke about the lights in the church on a timer? The, 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 the lights in a Presbyterian church were on a motion detector. Did you all know that? And, and so about halfway through the service, the lights went out because nobody moved. <laughs> Everybody was so still. There was no movement. The lights went out. And so the, the, the pastor actually had to lift his arm and go like this. Make the lights go back on. And, and then that was a scandal. The elders wanted to talk to him after church. So, well, a little, little fun there. But you get the idea. He, he was, they were being asked to do something. But they didn't understand all that was going to happen. But we can. We can see. We know the, the, the plot line. We know we can read between the lines. We know the end of the story. Joseph didn't have that advantage. He just obeyed. She'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus. He himself, he and no other, will save his people from their sins. Salvation is so much more than simply forgiving you of your sins. That's certainly part of it. But salvation in the mind of, of a Hebrew person, of somebody in the ancient Near East, salvation was much fuller than that. It meant that in every part of your life, you were going to be rescued. You would be healed. If you had a disease, you were going to be healed. Maybe not in this life, but in the resurrection you will. You may have been born in poverty, but that poverty will be dealt with. If not in this life, in the life to come. And ultimately, even if you die, death will be dealt with because you will be raised from the dead. You see, everything about sin. If you were a farmer and the locusts were coming, you would pray, God, save me from the locusts. An army is coming and invading your territory. God, save us. Or there's political intrigue in the palace. If you read the Psalms, I mean, David was always praying because the people in his palace were trying to overthrow him. And he would be praying at night for God to destroy them. Because they're trying to dethrone the king. Amazing. And Joseph actually does that in verse 24. Look down. It says he took Mary and he named it. And it repeats everything all over again because he's emphasizing the fact this man exhibited perfect character, perfect obedience. At his own expense, he was willing to sacrifice himself for Mary, for this child. He was going to give everything up. He was going to do the Ephesians chapter 5 type of husband. He was going to love Mary like Christ loves His church and gave Himself up for it. Do you see how glorious it is and why Joseph in our mind should be an amazing human being? Because He did it. He stepped in to save her. And that brings us to this prophecy. And the prophecy, we tend to use this prophecy about a virgin being with child as if this was going to be some event so that we could all kind of be watching and seeing what virgin shows up pregnant. Let's see. Because once we find the virgin who has a child, then we'll know who the Messiah is. It'll be her child. And that isn't at all the way the text is used in Isaiah. 
And I can't tell you the whole story, but I'll give it to you very quick because we don't have time to read it. But Ahaz the king, a king of Judah, was being threatened by the, the Syrian uh, nation in Damascus, this one group of, of uh, a political party in Damascus, Syria, who had allied themselves with the ten tribes of Israel, the northern tribes who were in rebellion against God, the Ephraimites, they were called Ephraimites, uh, after the one big major tribe. So they had formed what we call a coalition, the Syro-Ephraimite coalition, and they had threatened Ahaz and said, you've got to step down, we're going to put somebody else in power, and then we're going to resist the Assyrian Empire, which was this burgeoning empire that was taking over uh, that whole part of the world before the Babylonians came along, the Assyrians out of Nineveh. And they were threatening everybody, all the way to Egypt, all the way to uh, India and, and, and Mesopotamia, everywhere was threatened by the Assyrians. And this coalition, Syro-Ephraimite coalition, was going to rebel against them and wanted Israel to jo or Judah to join. They wouldn't do it. Ahaz wouldn't do it. He was afraid to do it. And because he had his own ideas of secretly uh, involving himself with the Assyrians and betraying the uh, uh, Syro-Ephraimite coalition. You all the intrigue going on. And he sends Isaiah, God sends Isaiah the prophet to give this prophecy which would have said, a virgin will have a child and you will call his name Emmanuel. And if you read Isaiah carefully, 7th chapter, 9th chapter, 11th chapter, he's talking about all his kids. Isaiah's using his own children, born perhaps of his second wife, a maiden, a virgin, to, to give Ahaz, the king, a message. And he's saying with one of the messages, this one in particular, we may look at some of the others next time, with this one, his name will be called Emmanuel. He's not talking about the child itself. It's talking about the sign that the child will portend. And Matthew picks up. In other words, Isaiah is telling Ahaz, I'm going to have a child, and I'm going to name him Emmanuel. Let this be a battle cry for you to not trust the Syro-Ephraimite coalition, and for goodness sakes, don't go make an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser Third over in Assyria because before the child is able to know good from bad, in other words, before he's grown up two, two three years old, the Syro-Ephraimite coalition is going to be gone. You have nothing to fear. Don't do it. And you know the end of the story. He goes and does it. He makes an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser and betrays the Syro-Ephraimite coalition and they lose and they lose big. And what God was telling Ahaz and the people of Israel is take this battle cry onto your lips. Emmanuel, God is with us. We don't need the Syro-Ephraimite coalition. We don't need Tiglath-Pileser III. We don't need the Pharaoh in Egypt. We don't need anybody we just need to trust the Lord our God because we have a sign. The sign of this child. The birth of this child. And Matthew picks up that theme, lifts it out of the book of Isaiah. And what was a real fact in Isaiah's life, they, his, his virgin wife did have this child. 
Matthew pours all of the meaning of God being with us, our battle cry against sin and darkness, that He is with us now, not just in a sign, but the substance, the real Son, Emmanuel. He reaches into that story, and he, into that, that old prophecy in the Old Testament, and He tells us, He tells the early church, and He tells us, and He told Joseph, Emmanuel, God, you remember Emmanuel, right? God is going to be with us. This child is going to be the great king who's going to come and protect you and wage war on your behalf. And so at Christmas time, every year at Christmas, we're to remember this, that the, the miracle of Christmas, folks, is not the virgin birth. It is a miracle. It's amazing. But that's not the miracle. The miracle of Christmas is that Jesus Christ was born at all. That God condescended to send His Son really into this world and really into this exigency of an unwed pregnancy and the shame and the guilt and the scorn and all that it would mean. Throughout Jesus' life to the moment He hung on the cross, they were still spitting mockery at Him. He took that on. He clothed Himself with that mockery and with that shame and with that guilt and poured His blood out so that we could live free and glorify and worship Emmanuel. And that's our battle cry, Emmanuel, God with us, assuring us and assuring Joseph and assuring the people of his day and the people of our day, God is with us. And folks, if you can't come to church and hear that God is our only hope and our refuge in time of trouble, then I don't know where you're going to hear it. Because everybody out there in the world wants to tell you they have the answer and that they'll protect you. And nobody's going to protect you. Nobody's going to die for you. Nobody's going to go all the way for you and take on your shame and clothe themselves with it. Where do we see that kind of radical obedience? Where do you see that kind of costly, sacrificial obedience? Not just doing what is right, but going above and beyond. Where do we get that? We get it in the life, the work, the person of Jesus Christ who took on the unwed bride, the adulteress, who took her on and said, you're mine. In John chapter 4, he went to a well where all the ancient people found their wives at wells. And he starts talking to a woman that had been married and involved with men for six times. And he tells her, you're mine. He doesn't go pick the princess out and the way over here. No, he goes and finds the least, the last, and the lost. And folks, if you don't see yourself as that person, I don't know how you ever come to Jesus. How do you ever come to Him if you don't see Him? as your Savior, the one who will cover you and take that shame, take that guilt from us at an incalculable cost. You could have quantified Joseph's cost. You could have somebody with a calculator or an abacus or you know some rocks could have tallied up what it was going to cost him down to the penny. But how do you assess the cost of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on the cross for you, taking it for you? Emmanuel, 
God with us. He goes into battle. He goes in to save his people. He goes to the cross. He goes to the grave. He is the one who gets shamed. Not so that you will never have to be shamed, but so that you can take it and that shame will not destroy you. It'll only be good for you. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, these things are too wonderful almost to put into words. And I, I don't know how to thank you. Uh, I know that every one of us here is grateful for all that you've done for us. And I pray that this Christmas will be an especially beautiful time for every family and every person in this church. A time of reflection. A time to trust you again. A time to give themselves to you fully and completely. We want to do that, Father because we need our shame covered. We need our sins atoned for so that we can be free. And I pray you'll do that for us, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.